Our first speaker today is Bart Kowalis. He's a professor of geological sciences at Brigham Young University and is also the associate dean in the College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences. His research focuses on geochronology and study of Jurassic rocks in Utah. And he's a Geological Society of America fellow. And he was also my professor at BYU. So uh, he'll be speaking on From All Eternity to All Eternity, Deep Time, and the Gospel. Thank you, Janie. Do we have a little thing to change the slides with? I'm surprised there's anybody still here. There's. I understand there's a football game going on shortly, and <laughs> I feel badly about missing it because I'm an alumnus of both Wisconsin and BYU. And uh, two of my kids flew out to go to the game today, so. <clears throat> like Moses, I often feel my own nothingness when compared to the greatness of God and his creations. In his face-to-face -face encounter with God, Moses was told that worlds without number have I created, and that there are many worlds that have passed away, and many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto man. Not only was it the worlds that God had created that were innumerable, but the heavens as well. With this revealed understanding of the enormity of God's creations, I am always somewhat puzzled by those who profess a belief in God, but are troubled by the idea of deep time. Deep time is also called geologic time and refers to the vast length of time scientists have determined it took for the earth and the heavens to arrive at their current form and station. Imagine with me for a moment a movie with perhaps a catchy title like Earth the Movie and that this movie shows the entire history of the earth from its creation to the present day. The producers have reduced each year of earth history down to one second of movie time. So being an interested student of natural history, you grab a jumbo popcorn and a caffeine-free Diet Coke and join a throng of others for the opening night release of the movie. After watching for the first couple of hours, you begin to wonder how much longer this movie is going to last. And in spite of the severe social consequences, you pull out your phone and make a quick calculation. Hmm, 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, 365.25 days in a year gives you 31,557,600 seconds in a year. So that means if the producers reduced Earth's history to one second for each year and the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, then this movie is going to be playing for about 146 years. At that point, you decide you'd better get up and get a refill on your popcorn and soda. So how do we reconcile such long periods of time with our religion? In both science and religion, we rely upon faith in our beliefs to guide us and help us interpret the world. In our LDS faith, the prophet Joseph Smith laid down the 13 articles of faith, which succinctly provide us with a snapshot look at our foundational beliefs. I like to summarize in a similar way the basic faith and beliefs of scientists in what I call the scientists' articles of confession and belief. Number one, 
We confess that nothing in science is ever absolutely proved. Absolute proof requires us to have no room for error, no approximations, no tests left undone, no possibility of future modification. Science never reaches this point, no matter what the principle happens to be. Neither gravity, nor motion, nor relativity, nor deep geologic time has been proven in an absolute sense. But simply because they have not reached the level of absolute proof does not mean that they are not useful, and that, as far as we have been able to determine, they are true. We confess, number two, that all scientific laws and theories are based upon assumptions and approximations. Even though our scientific laws and theories are based upon assumptions and approximations, we use them because they work. Newton's laws of motion and gravity are approximations that work well enough for us to plan, plot, and send a rocket to the moon, to Mars, and even to the farthest corners of our solar system. Number three, we confess that science cannot answer the ultimate question of why. For example, why do two objects attract one another? We might answer that they attract because of gravity. But why is there gravity? We might respond that there's gravity because the objects have mass and that masses create a kind of depression in the fabric of space and time into which nearby objects will fall. But why? Why do objects with mass affect space and time in this manner? We don't know. They just do. The beautiful thing in science is that no matter how many questions we answer, there are always more that are unanswered for us to investigate. Number four, we claim the first principles and assumptions of science are, first, faith in the existence of the physical universe. Second, requisite causes for all events. Third, between two contrary positions, only one can be true. And fourth, the laws of nature apply equally to all people and all objects. These are just some of the basic assumptions of science, none of which we can prove, but which appear to be true based upon numerous observations and tests. Here are a few more fundamental assumptions. Number five, we believe that the pr same principles of science apply in all directions and all places, whether we are located high or low, far or near, east or west, in Provo or Salt Lake City. Number six, we believe that all men will find the principles of science to be the same, whether they be at rest or in motion. Indeed, we claim that the motion can, itself can only be measured in a relative sense. That is to say, there is no absolute motion. And number seven, we believe that the principles of science are the same today, yesterday, and forever that they are unaffected by the passage of time. I will stop there. That is not quite as many articles as the prophet Joseph laid out for our faith, and more could probably be added to this list. However, these will suffice for our discussion here, where I will focus my remarks primarily upon the last one, our belief that the principles of science are the same yesterday, today, and forever. In my field of geology, this idea was first developed by James Hutton, a Scottish gentleman farmer who was deeply religious. He called the idea uniformitarianism, a somewhat unfortunate term that sounds a bit like a religious sect. Physicists call this idea time symmetry. After examining the rocks near his home in Scotland, Hutton published a paper wherein he proclaimed that 
The result, therefore, of our present inquiry is that we find no vestige of a beginning, no prospect of an end, unquote. The Earth's history to Hutton appeared to be endless. So how have these ideas about time and creation been received by LDS church members and leaders? We've heard much about that already today, so I apologize for repeating a few things. To examine this history, I would like to present you with what I call the LDS myths about science, some of which have broader application than just to an LDS audience. Myth number one, scientific theories are just speculation. Since they are not facts, I don't need to believe or worry about them. <clears throat> Every myth has a grain of truth mixed with significant amounts of fantasy. This myth, which I find very prevalent among my students and the general public, has this grain of truth. No one has to believe anything they do not want to believe. But those who choose not to believe the theories of science should at least understand what is meant by theory. In science, a theory is quite different from an hypothesis. An hypothesis is an idea, a question, a speculation, or a possibility with very little data to back it up. Hypotheses give direction to our research and help us to continue to expand the frontiers of knowledge by providing us with challenges and with questions to answer. My impression is that most non-scientists do not distinguish between an hypothesis and a theory. A theory is quite different. A theory is not just speculation, even though the word is often used in conversation in this manner. Someone, for example, might say, I have a theory that the football team would play better if they just drank more pickle juice. Among scientists, this would be an hypothesis, not a theory. To make it into a theory, data would need to be collected in very carefully constructed tests. Data would then be examined and analyzed to look for patterns and trends. The tests would then need to be duplicated by other scientists working with other football teams, and eventually a soundly reasoned explanation based upon all of the available evidence and data would be constructed. This would then become a model or theory and might be given a catchy name like the pickle juice theory or something equally as catchy. Scientific laws are no different. They are really just impressive theories. The law of gravity, for example, is an explanation for why objects are attracted to each other. It could just as easily be called the theory of gravity. You do not have to believe the theory of gravity. And indeed, there are still scientists, as we heard earlier today, who are still questioning this theory and suggesting that perhaps it needs to be modified. However, I would recommend it to you as a very good explanation for many physical phenomena, an explanation that you probably do not want to ignore if you plan to have an active life. So when scientists say theory, they mean a well-reasoned explanation that satisfies all or most of the available data and has been demonstrated to work. That is why we use them. They work. This does not mean our theories or laws will never be modified or changed. Certainly not. Anytime new data or new observations appear that do not fit the explanation, the theories must be looked at again and modified. If these new observations and data hold up under the intense scrutiny that is sure to come from the scientific community, then the theory will be modified or changed. In the end, we keep the explanations, 
the theories that work, and we discard the ones that do not. In our context here today, the theories that explain radioactive decay and the use of radioactive elements as clocks are some of the most widely tested and tried explanations in science. They have been demonstrated to work in many places and under many different conditions. Do you have to believe them? No. Just as I said earlier with the theory of gravity, you are free to believe whatever you want. But you should understand that by rejecting the theory, you are rejecting something that has been demonstrated to work based on years of scientific data and careful scientific review. In the context of the LDS Church, I personally do not believe that there is any conflict between the theories of radioactive decay and gospel doctrine. There is, however, in some quarters, the perception that an old earth would violate church doctrine. This is the next myth I wish, wish to discuss. Myth number two, official LDS church doctrine is that the earth is only a few thousand years old. I have not found any official statements by the First Presidency on the age of the earth. However, many individuals, including a number of LDS scientists, as well as several general authorities, have made statements about its age. This is indeed a case where, if you want to rely on someone else's answer, you can pick your favorite because the statements of LDS authorities and scientists vary widely. I will briefly here outline a few of the writings and statements made on this issue that support my personal point of view that the earth is old. I could just as easily have produced a number of quotes supporting other points of view. Uh, finally, um, in, it went one too far. There we go. In January of 1844, and we heard this quote earlier today, at the time Joseph Smith was prophet, a letter from W.W. W. Phelps to William Smith was published in the Times and Seasons that included the interesting statement, eternity has been going on in this system, not this world, for almost 2,555 millions of years and to know at the same time that deists, geologists, and others are trying to prove that matter must have existed hundreds of thousands of years. Apart from the somewhat unusual idea of trying to put an age on eternity, or the fact that Phelps arrived at this number using a little bit of faulty math, this passage suggests that the idea of an old creation of at least 2.555 billion years for our system, as Phelps called it, was not foreign to the early members of the church. The prophet Brigham Young, in a discourse delivered in the tabernacle in Salt Lake City on, March, on May 14, 1871, stated, Our religion will not clash with or contradict the facts of science in any particular. You may take geology, for instance, and it is a true science. Not that I would say for a moment that all the conclusions and deductions of its professors are true, but its leading principles are they are facts, they are eternal. As for the Bible account of creation, we may say that the Lord gave it to Moses and that that account has been handed down from age to age and we have got it, no matter whether it is correct or not and whether the Lord found the earth empty and void or whether he made it in six days or in as many millions of years and is and will remain a matter of speculation in the minds of men until he gives revelation on the subject." Unquote. That the earth might be millions of years old seemed not to be of concern to President Young. On the 9th of August, 1931, Apostle and former professor of geology, James E. Talmage, delivered an address in the tabernacle entitled The Earth and Man, 
The talk was later printed in full in the Deseret News. Talmadge's off-quoted statement from this talk that, quote, the opening chapters of Genesis and scriptures related thereto were never intended as a textbook of geology, archaeology, earth science, or man science, and that we do not show reverence for the scriptures when we misapply them through faulty interpretation, unquote, is similar to Galileo's statement written in 1613 in his letter to Castilli. Here Galileo states, quote, scripture deals with natural matters in such a a cursory and elusive way that it looks as though it wanted to remind us that its business is not about them, but about the soul. Both Talmadge and Galileo are suggesting that sometimes we try to read too much into the scriptures when their intent is to teach us about salvation and not science. David O. McKay, in a speech given in 1956 at BYU in October, while he was president of the church, said, and now I have just time to comment on the opportunity of, B of the BYU to teach these fundamental truths. Whatever the subject may be, the teacher can be free to express his honest conviction regarding it, whether that subject be in geology, the history of the world, the millions of years that it took to prepare the physical world, any principle of the gospel may be briefly or extensively touched upon for the anchoring of the student who is seeking to know the truth." Unquote. I do not think that this statement necessarily shows President McKay's personal views on the age of the earth, but it demonstrates that, at least in his mind, there was no issue with those who held that belief. Apostle John A. Widso wrote in his book, Evidences and Reconciliations, in 1960, that the word translated day in Genesis really means in the original an age or an undefined period of time, unquote, and concluded his chapter on the age of the earth by stating that, quote, clearly it does not matter to one's daily welfare or ultimate salvation which view he adopts, except that every Latter-day Saint must seek and cherish truth above all else, unquote. Another quote which we have already heard today from Apostle Bruce R. McConkie in June of 82, Quote, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but what is a day? It is a specified time period. It is an age, an eon, a division of eternity. It is a time between two identifiable events, and each day of whatever length has the duration needed for its purposes. My impression from reading through these and other writings by church leaders and scientists is that the age of the earth is not a critical issue for our salvation and that no official church doctrine exists on the subject. Myth number three, the earth is old because it was made from pieces of other planets. In 1841, William Clayton, the prophet Joseph Smith's private secretary, reported that the prophet said, this earth was organized or formed out of other planets which were broke up and remodeled and made into one on which we live. Later, the prophet Joseph Smith in the King Follett Discourse stated that the, world cre the word create does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize the same as a man would organize materials to build a ship. This was a, unquote, this, this was a surprising doctrine in the 1840s and counter to the prevailing view of creation among many religions at the time. Today, science firmly believes that the earth and indeed our whole solar system was created from the remnants left behind when an earlier star was destroyed in a supernova explosion. So the prophet Joseph was not only ahead of his time theologically, but scientifically as well. Orson Pratt extended this idea of the prophet Joseph to explain the old ages being proposed for the earth in a discourse given in 1876. He said, quote, geologists pretend to say that this earth must have existed many millions of years. 
We will go further than geologists dare to go and say that the materials of which the earth is composed are eternal. They will never have an end. We are willing to admit that the materials themselves are as old as geologists dare say they are, but then that does not destroy the idea of a God. That does not destroy the idea of a great creator who brought these materials into a certain organization." Unquote. I would agree with Elder Pratt that the old ages <clears throat> excuse me, proposed by geologists do nothing to destroy the idea of a great creator. However, I would disagree with him on the explanation for these old ages. Some others have even used this data to explain the fossils found in the Earth's rocks. These ideas do not hold up under scrutiny and a careful analysis of the available, of the available evidence. All of the evidence gathered from studying the Earth indicates that its surface was molten and very hot early in its history. These conditions would have destroyed any fossils, and the heat and the molten nature of the surface would have also reset any radioactive clocks to zero. The radioactive clocks used by scientists are more like stopwatches than clocks. They start when a rock or mineral cools to a certain temperature and can be reset to, to zero if they are reheated. We can call the temperature at which minerals begin to accumulate time their closure temperature. Different minerals and different radiometric methods have different closure temperatures ranging from more than 900 degrees centigrade for the uranium lead method using the mineral zircon to less than 100 degrees centigrade for the fission track method using the mineral apatite. The value in having minerals and systems that are sensitive to different temperatures is that we can use a variety of those methods to help us construct a thermal history of the rocks. And by knowing its thermal history, we can infer the timing of different events in its past. And you can ask me more on that later. I'm gonna skip over this next slide where I talk about research we did on the little cottonwood stock. The last myth, Janie, have I got another minute? You're gonna give me another minute. Geologists have used carbon-14 to date the age of the Earth. This is a fairly prevalent myth as far as I've been able to determine from my limited sampling of students over the years. I once took a survey of my introductory geology students and asked if carbon-14 had been used to determine the age of the Earth, and well over 50% of the students responded in the affirmative. The truth is that carbon-14 is not useful for dating the age of the Earth, and certainly has never been used that way. Carbon-14 has a half-life of about 5,730 years. Radioactive isotopes like carbon-14 can be used as clocks over a span of about 10 half-lives, well under the age of the Earth. So, in summary, my sentiments on the significant significance of the age of the Earth echoes that of Dr. Henry Eyring, one of the most respected LDS scientists. After reviewing the evidence from modern science for an old Earth, he wrote in his book, The Faith of a Scientist, most scientists agree on an age for the Earth of about, quote, most scientists agree on an age of the Earth of about four and one half billion years. On the other hand, the exact age of the Earth is apparently of so little import religiously that the scriptures sketch Earth history in only the briefest terms. Gospel truths which influence our salvation are unaffected by considerations such as this. Unquote. It is my hope that as science continues to advance, we will look for ways to find harmony between scientific ideas and our religion, always keeping in mind that our understanding and perception of both can change with the passage of time. Thank you. Is there a little packet of questions? Here we go, they're coming. 
I have read a BYU professor has proved the carbon dating process is, I guess it's inaccurate and false. Is this true? No, that's not true. Uh, carbon dating has its errors and its uh, uh, complications, but we have ways of checking carbon-14 ages against other ages. Uh, for example, we have uh, tree ring ages now that go back, um, how far, Janie? About 10,000 years, uh, which we can check carbon-14 over that period of time. We have uh, ice cores, which go back hundreds of thousands of years now, and we can check the carbon-14 against some of that. So, no, we, we haven't thrown carbon-14 away. It's a great method for dating young things, geologically. By young, that's in the last 60,000 years or so. Uh, but we don't use it for dating the age of the Earth. Question number two. Joseph and Brigham both expressed belief and taught that the inside of the Earth is inhabited. Has the hollow earth theory truly been debunked? I don't, I don't uh, personally know of the quotes where Joseph and Brigham said that the earth was inhabited inside, and uh, perhaps you could send those to me. Uh, but yes, there, there is no, uh, uh, no empty space inside the earth. We have great pictures just as with um, a mother who's having a baby, uh, we go in, we have an ultrasound, we can see a picture of the baby very clearly inside of the mother's womb. We can take pictures of the earth and see the interior of the earth using seismic waves. And uh, there are no empty spaces, contrary to what you may have seen in the movie entitled The Core a few years ago, uh, where the, space, the interior of the earth probe went into an empty void. Down there, it was filled with quartz crystals down in the mantle. That's another, there's no quartz in the mantle, so. Um, as there have been many scientific statements made by church leaders, true and false, what counsel do you give when faced with the decision to believe statements from church leaders? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think the first thing that we need to remember is that these are men just like the rest of us. And they are, uh, as far as I can tell, they are very, very good men. They have good hearts. They have strong testimonies of the gospel. They are not intending to mislead us in any way. But that does not mean that everything they say will eventually hold up under years of scrutiny. So my counsel has always been to accept those things which seem to make sense to me and pray about those that don't and uh, find in there some uh, harmony between what they are saying and what I know through my studies of science to be true. Thank Professor Corliss. Thank you.